Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. Today you will hear Pastor Wilson's sermon, A Theology of Christmas Presents, Part 4. So this morning I'm finishing a series of sermons on the theology of Christmas presents, and I was thinking it was something of a shame that um, most of this series was preached after most of you ladies had already finished all your shopping, had already finished all the prep, and so you weren't weren't really able to take all these principles and apply them. But however, you men who are going to be doing all your shopping tomorrow, (laughs) we, we expect great things from you. So in, in light of all the foregoing, we've talked about the unspeakable gift, how God gave us the gift of Christ and how it is normal and right and a good, pa- a good pattern for us to Im- mimic and imitate the Lord's generosity in our gift giving to one another at a time of celebration like this. In light of all that uh, foregoing truth, we should not be surprised when we find that we have to affirm the goodness of the material world. We have to affirm the goodness of the material world. This should be obvious, but tragically, many Christians find it easy to slip off the point. They have let their awareness of sin and the pervasiveness of sin to to make them take the one extra step, and that is to regard stuff, material stuff itself, as somehow contaminated. When the Creator God created and fashioned everything, it was His good pleasure to declare all of it good or very good. God created the material world, and He he declared all of it good or very good. There's a type of spirituality that regards the material world, the material existence, as inherently corrupt. It's automatically a downgrade from pure spirituality. But God said that the created order was good in Genesis 1-4, Genesis 1-10, Genesis 1-12, Genesis 1-18, 21, 25, and 31. Good, good, good. And he says then, very good. In the second place, the incarnation of Christ that we celebrate at this time of year was a permanent reality. Jesus did not take on human flesh for 33 years, and then in the ascension, returned back to the way it was before. The incarnation was permanent. That means the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Logos of God, took on flesh forever. John 1.14, he took on flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He will be Emmanuel, he will be God with us forever. He is our priest forever, making intercession for us always and forever in Hebrews 7:25 our high priest in order to be in order to be our high priest the lord jesus has to be one of us in order to in order for his priestly intercession to be priestly intercession he's got to be one of our number and his priestly intercession extends forever and ever and third we were not promised immortal souls but rather a resurrection from the dead We do not believe, as Christians, we do not believe 
fundamentally in the immortality of the soul, but rather in the resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, our souls are immortal, but that ultimately is a Greek concept. Socrates believed in the immortality of the soul. Christians affirm the resurrection of the dead, and of course your soul is part of, the, part of that deal. So we will be embodied creatures forever, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Matter is good. God likes it. He invented it in the first place, and he redeemed it. He did not do this in order to throw it away. He did not create it in order to throw it away, and when we wrecked it, we didn't make it essentially wicked, but we messed with it, we, we harmed it. The created order is under a burden, the created order is under a curse, not because it is inherently sinful, but because uh, God's steward over the created order has fallen and the whole created order fell with it, as Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 8. So, God did not create it in the first place, and he did not redeem it in his son in order to, to wad it all up and throw it away. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, not only of human bodies, but also of the whole created order. Everything will be made new. The world is forever. You are, in order for you to be resurrected from the dead and have a resurrected body, you're going to have to have somewhere to stand. Right? You're, going to have to, you're going to have to have a world to live in. The, the heavens and the earth are going to be completely overhauled and made new. Now, with that background of the goodness of the material world, let's consider what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is thanking the Philippians for the financial support that they had sent to him. They had sent a gift, and Paul is very grateful, and this is his thank you. But he hastens to add that he would have been all right regardless. Thank you very much for your gift, but I would have made it anyhow. Now, that's not an ungrateful jab. He's, he's teaching them something. In verse 10, it's, I'm, not trying to, I'm not thanking you because I'm trying to wheedle more out of you. I'm not thanking you because I, this is my way of manipulating you. I would have been all right, but thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for your generosity to me. Verse 10, he was content before their gift arrived, and he was grateful and contented after their gift had arrived. Verse 11, now, this is something that the apostle had to learn, and we may be assured that we need to learn it also. And we need to learn in an area we, where we sometimes assume that we don't need to learn. So then Paul begins to explain the lesson. Once he begins to explain the lesson, we see how much we have to learn. The apostle Paul had to learn in both directions. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul had to learn in both directions, and we tend to assume that we only have to learn in one direction. We think that we, need, we do need to learn contentment when we are going through a trouble, when we're going through affliction. Yes, I need to have God give me true divine contentment when I'm going through troubles. I can handle it by myself when things are going smoothly. When things are going well, when I just got the promotion, when I've got extra money, I don't need God's help with that. Oh, you do need God's help with that. You need God's help with that far more than you need God's help with the affliction. Notice what Paul says. He had to learn in both directions. Paul had learned to be abased and he had learned how to abound. Verse 12, Paul learned how to be abased and how to abound. He was instructed on how to be full and he was instructed on how to be hungry. And we notice when we're hungry 
And we cry out to God when we're hungry. We cry out to God when we're afflicted. And so we say, well, see, listen, look at me listening to God. Look at me crying out to God, right? And then when you're prosperous, look at you not crying out to God. Look at you not talking to God. Look at you not walking with God. What could go wrong? All right, what could go wrong? Everything could go wrong. God says to the rich fool in the parable, you fool, tonight your life is gonna, is gonna be taken from you. What, what good will your bigger barns do you then? So Paul had to learn in both directions. He had, he had learned to abound and he had learned to suffer want, verse 12. He can do all things through Christ, the one who alone gives him strength, verse 13. We think that we need such lessons for our afflictions, of course, but we assume that we have abundance nailed. We assume that we have abundance nailed. We have that down, but I'm afraid we do not. We must still learn contentment, even if we've never had it so good. And I would say, especially if you've never had it so good. And simply going without whatever it was, uh, whatever it was you might lose, isn't going to teach that lesson. You have to learn that lesson taught by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to deal with rich people and teach them how to be wealthy. Just as he has to teach the man in the dungeon teach the man in the slums, teach the man with no prospects. God has to give divine contentment to people who are uh, in trouble. He has to give that divine contentment. And it's the same Spirit of God who has to give the same contentment to people who are doing well. Now, this is, this is something we also have to uh, make an adjustment for. And this is something as we're looking at these texts in Scripture. In, uh, at the time of the New Testament, the people who were wealthy were a tiny sliver of the population. Now, the church, as the church grew and expanded, there were rich people in the congregation, there were poor people in the congregation, but there, there has never been a time in the history of the world, apart from the present, where in the Western world, virtually everything Paul says about wealth and riches applies to virtually everyone. Right? In, in other words, uh, you tend to, we tend to think of uh, relative poverty. We, we think that relative poverty is absolute poverty. If you, absolute poverty is if you're living in a cardboard box outside Manila and you're going to die uh, sometime later this week if you don't get some medicine or you don't get some food. That's absolute poverty. Relative poverty in America, relative poverty set by some bureaucrat at some, uh, in some administration, administrative agency somewhere says this is the poverty line. X number of Americans live below the poverty line. Yeah, and you know what an American looks, uh, you, you know what an American looks like living below the poverty line? He's the fellow who owns his own house, has two cars, has three television sets, and he's having trouble making his iPhone payments. That is someone who is poor in our setup. And everything, everything that Paul says, everything that Scripture says to the wealthy, you need to learn contentment in the midst of abundance. That's not for you to check off and say, oh, that, that applies to the millionaires and billionaires. No, it applies to virtually everyone in this room, if not everyone in this room. So there's two basic errors when, we, when we're dealing with the, the goodness of the material world. On the one hand is the error of the health and wealth preachers health and wealth preachers, the, the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it preachers, who say that godliness should be considered an automatic path to wealth. If you're godly, it's, you're automatically on the royal road to riches. Consider 1 Timothy 6, 5 and 6. 
On the other hand, we have an abundance of suspicious Gnostic teachers who despise the material world. They despise the material world, and they teach you to be suspicious of the material world. If you let a devil into your house, if you let a devil teach you, what will he teach? What will a devil teach? Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving to them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. Did you know the devil's a legalist? Did you know that the devil was overly scrupulous? Do you know that the devil accuses you and says, ah, 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 you better not have that, better not taste that, better not go there, better not eat that. That looks a little decadent. That looks a little Babylonian, better not eat that. That's how the devil talks. Forbids to marry, forbids sex, forbids food, forbids celebration. That's how the devil teaches. The devil is a spoil sport. In 1 Timothy uh, 6, 17, what, is, what does Paul say to the rich in this present world? And remember what I said earlier, that's all of you guys. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Now, let me say that again. You wealthy people, you need to remember... And you will remember if the Spirit is teaching you, like Paul says in Philippians 4, that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. You, you have a moral obligation to enjoy your stuff. You have an, a moral obligation before God to enjoy your stuff in the presence of God. There's going to be more on this in a minute. The devil hates you, and he doesn't much mind which way he destroys you. If he drowns you in a swamp in a glut of material possessions, he's fine with that. He's fine with drowning you in a swamp. If he starves you in a desolate wilderness, he's good with that because he hates you both ways. Right? He hates you when you've got an abundance of things and you've forgotten God and you're living in your own self-sufficiency and, and you say, as they said in Deuteronomy 8, my hand, my wisdom, my, my smarts has gotten me this wealth. He, he loves it when you do that. And he loves it when you give up things simply for the sake of giving things up. As though, God, as, as though God were the same kind of spoil sport that the devil is. So learning gladness and learning gratitude is not a trifle. It's not a little thing. Learning gladness and gratitude is not a small thing. It's a crucial lesson. Consider Deuteronomy 28. This is... Moses speaking to the people, telling them why, when they're hauled off into exile, why, when they go down and defeat before their enemies, why it happened. Deuteronomy 28, 47 and 48. And I'll, I'll say it again here. These are the words of God. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Because you didn't do that, because you didn't serve God with joy, because you didn't serve God with gladness for the abundance of your stuff. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee, in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. When Israel went down in defeat before her enemies, why was this? Because of their refusal to be joyful in the presence of God for their material possessions. 
When Israel was hauled off into exile, why, what was their sin? Their sin was an inability to rejoice in their stuff, and the second part is crucial, in the presence of God. Enjoying their stuff in the presence of the Lord, who gave it to them so that they could enjoy it. If you are enjoying your stuff in the presence of God, the first thing you want to do is share. You want to be like God has been so good to you, and you want to be like him, and how, what did he do for you? He gave you this stuff. The, the first thing you want to do, your first impulse, is to share. The carnal heart cannot bring these two things together. The carnal heart wants to come to church and give the good Lord his ethereal due, and then sneak off to enjoy whatever, whatever idolatrous tidbits he has stashed off somewhere to the side. But God will have none of it. He wants us to come before him and rejoice in what he has given us here in his presence. He wants us to rejoice in your car, in your house, in your family, in the things he's given you. And he wants you to acknowledge it and receive it openly, rejoicing in it in his presence. So he wants us to come before him and rejoice in what he has given us in his presence. He wants us to glory in his goodness here. Now, if we don't, if we refuse, if we say, oh, that's, that'd be materialist, that'd be, that's the American consumer materialistic religion. That's all the lights at the mall, right? I, I, I'll tell you, if you take a censorious legalistic Christian who's going, ah, 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 and then you look at a decked out shopping mall, come and buy our stuff. The mall is closer to the kingdom than the censorious Christian is. The mall is, yeah, they get, do they get anything wrong? Yeah, they get some stuff wrong. Do they do it wrong? Are they sinning at all? Yeah, they're sinning some, but they're closer to the, they're closer to the kingdom. That's more like it. That's more like it. It's not there. Jesus doesn't say to that one fellow, you're in the kingdom. He says, you're closer to the kingdom. You're getting warm. You're getting warm. We, want, we should say to materialistic America, when God gives revival, we want to show you how that's really done. We want to show you, we want to show you what an actual celebration looks like. So, faith is the eye. We're not to look at our faith through our goods. That was a temptation to some people. Oh, I'm, I'm rich, God must love me. All right. Oh, I'm wealthy, God must love me. That's looking at your status before God with the eye of your material possessions, as though wealth were a sign of election. Rather, we're to look at all our goods through the eye of faith. Faith is what sees. Faith is the eye. What we have, or whatever we do not have, is what we're supposed to see in faith. If you have good stuff, you're to look at it in faith. If you've had something taken away from you that was precious to you, and you are grieving over it, you need to look at that absence. You need to look at that vacancy in faith. You need to look at abundance in faith. You remember Paul in Philippians 4 is learning in both directions. I've learned to be well-fed. I've learned to be hungry. I've learned how to abound. I've learned how, how to be abased. I've learned it both ways. And faith is what enables you to learn both ways. Faith is, is what enables you to see what God is up to. Faith does handle adversity well, but faith also handles affluence well. We mark the great heroes of the faith for their accomplishments, some of which accomplishments the world would call success, and some of which the world would call humiliating defeat. What do we call it and why? We call it whatever faith teaches us to call it. 
If this man is faithful and he prospers, we call it God's blessing. If this man is faithful and he gets slammed and he gets tied to a stake and he gets burned, we call it God's blessing. We call it an early promotion. He was taken to glory early. The martyrs, the martyr Antipas in Revelation, who was roasted inside an, uh, 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 like a, an idol, he was, burned to, he was burned to death, and he was named in the book of Revelation as a faithful witness. The, and the, church, the Christian church has had many faithful martyrs testifying to the lordship of Christ with their blood. And we oftentimes think of the first century as the, that's the age of the martyrs when Christians were being thrown to lions. No, the age of the martyrs is the 21st century right now. The age of the martyrs is what's going on in Indonesia, what's going on in Africa, what's going on in the places where many, many Christians are sealing their testimony with their blood. This is the age of martyrdom. And we don't look, we don't look at someone who is burned alive. We don't look at someone who's shot because he won't deny the name of Jesus and say, oh, you must be displeasing God somehow. No, we say that's faithfulness unto death. That's imitating the Lord Jesus, right? If you are privileged to be blessed in a material way, that is also a path that pilgrims ought to walk. God wants some people to walk on that path and other people to walk on this one. And faith is able to see that the people on those two paths are brother and sister. They're doing the same thing. They're following God. How do we know this? Sometimes, consider what it says in Hebrews 11. And this, this is a glorious passage because in just one passage, it, it wads up and throws away the teaching of the health and wealth guys. And at the same time, it wads up and throws away the people who say, what God wants for you is perpetual poverty and defeat. Right? It, throw, it rejects both of those. Consider this. What does faith do? What does faith do? Sometimes faith subdues kingdoms, works righteousness, obtains promises, stops the mouths of lions, quenches fire, escapes the sword, grows strong when weak, becomes valiant in war, repulses invaders, and receives the dead back to life. That's Hebrews 11, 33 through 35. First part of 35. Faith does all those things. What does faith do? Faith wins. That's what faith does. What else does faith do? Faith loses. Right? Isn't, that great? Isn't that glorious? What else does faith do? Other times, faith is tortured, mocked, scourged, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slaughtered with the sword, wanders in the wilderness, is impoverished, afflicted, tormented, and lives in caves. When God has blessed you materially, you are supposed to be grateful from the bottom of your heart. And if God takes it all away, you're supposed to be grateful from the bottom of your heart. You're supposed to be contented when you're fed well, and you're supposed to be contented when you are not. And it's only the Holy Spirit that can teach you to go both directions that way. So what is the thread that ties all of these pearls together? What is the thread that can have the pearl of affluence and affliction on the same necklace? Is it not our faith? Without faith, there can be no necklace. Without faith, there can be no understanding of the way that God is working in this world. Because God gives his children victory, and God gives his children victory in defeat. God gives his children victory in victory, and he gives them victory in defeat. And there's always no condemnation. It's always that way. And so, when, 
when someone visits our church from a, a persecuted country and they marvel at the liberty and the freedom that we have to worship God here, and they know that we pray for them, we know, they know that we pray for the persecuted church regularly here, we know how hard it is for people in other parts of the world, how hard it is for our brothers and sisters. We know that, and they could come, and if they wanted to be a little censorious, they could say, well, you don't really know, you know. You don't really know what it's like. No, we don't really know what it's like. But we know enough to, to obey God and pray for you as we're commanded to pray for you. So, what does all this have to do with celebrating Christmas? Why is this oh so merry and bright? And so this is something all of us must learn. The material world is good. The material world is very good. The stupidity of our sinfulness, the stupidity of our rebellion, tried to wreck it, but despite our best efforts, has not succeeded. We've marred it, we've vandalized it, we've spray-painted things on the surface of it, but the material world remains very good. The world is broken, but, but still, there's with plenty of goodness to go around. The world is broken, but with plenty of goodness to share. The main thing that is wrong in it, the main thing that is wrong in it, and look in a mirror here, right? G.K. Chesterton was once asked, could you contribute an essay? I, where they wrote to different uh, essayists and writers and said, could you contribute an essay on what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton submitted a two-word essay. He wrote back, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. If you want to fix what's wrong with the world, start with what you can see. Start with what you can get at. If you want to fix what's wrong with the world, start with your own stinginess. Start with your own grasping. Start with your own self-pity. Start with, start with those things that you need to address before God here, inside. Why are you so miserable? It's, it's not out there. All right. Do you see that? The, the affliction, the affluence, the abasement, all of the turmoil that Paul was going through in the text, hunger and well-fed, all of that's out there. The reason you're miserable is only in here. And that's where it has to be addressed. That's where the gospel reaches. That's what the gospel touches. So the main thing that's wrong with the world, and each one of us ought to think that we are the main thing wrong with it, has been put to rights in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The problem with the world, your ego, the problem with the world, your rebellion, the problem with the world, your self-pity, the problem with the world, your selfishness, the problem with the world, your martyr complex, the problem with the world, your resentment, your feminism, your egalitarianism, your envy, you're keeping a record of wrongs. All of those things were crucified in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you say, well, I don't believe that, well, then you're not a Christian. If you're not trusting in the cross of Christ, if you're not trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection, then you're not a Christian, not the, real kind, not the kind of Christian that is redeemed and saved and on their way to heaven. If you do, if you do believe that Jesus died for sin and sinners, if you do believe that, then there's no way to believe it without getting on board. You can't believe it without participating. You can't be, 
you can't believe in the crucifixion of Christ really unless you're crucified with him. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I don't live anymore. That is salvation. And that's the only thing that can put to death the thing that's wrong with the world. So he did that so that we might be recreated in his image. Then he said, this is Nehemiah 8, verse 10. Then he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. Eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send gifts. Eat the fat, all right, you're going to have a Christmas dinner. Eat the fat, drink the sweet, do both those things, and give presents. And give presents for those who don't have what you have. For this day is holy. Do you, that's, this is what holiness looks like. Holiness looks like eating fudge, drinking wine, and sending presents. That's what holiness looks like. This day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength, and nothing else is. So as you bake, and as you shop, and as you wrap, and as you smuggle contraband into the house, and as you decorate the tree, and as you set the table, and as you invite people over, and as you deliver cookies to friends, and as you tighten your belts this year, hoping for a better year next year, all of it, this is, remember, we're learning in every direction, and as you give a lavish gift that is perhaps 5% beyond wise, as you laugh over your dinner, as you come here to sing carols, remember that Christ is in all of it. Christ is in all of it. He permeates everything. All of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. That means all of his life, his faithful death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. All of that is God's unspeakable gift to you. He offers it to you. And faith is what unwraps it. That's the gift that is given to you. And faith is the thing that receives that gift. And when that gift is offered and received, it transforms. If, if you can pretend to unwrap it, you can pretend to receive the gift, you can go through the motions. But if you receive the gift, you are set free. Set free from your resentment, set free from your envy, set free from your censoriousness, set free from your legalism, set free from your pettiness, set free from everything that has ever wrecked any Christmas dinner anywhere, set, set free from all of that, all of it, set free because Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again from the dead. This is why, as the, as the wonderful poem by uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins has it, Christ plays in 10,000 places. Christ plays in 10,000 places. If you understand that, then you understand the gospel. If you don't understand that, then you need to plead with God to give you an understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel is what sets us free from the thing that makes us miserable. And when we're set free from the thing which makes us miserable, we are set free to eat the fat and drink the sweet and to send portions to those without because the joy of the Lord is our strength. We don't fight so that we can have joy. We fight with joy as a weapon. 
Our joy is a weapon. It's, it's the thing that we use as our strength. It's not something that we wish we could uh, keep safe behind us somewhere. It's, it's, the, it's our shield. It's our armor. It's the thing we fight with. It's, it's the weapon that God has given us to fight with. So the joy of the Lord is your strength. There is nothing, I mean absolutely nothing, that can stand before singing forgiven saints. Singing forgiven and forgiving saints who've been set free by the gospel, who understand what the incarnation was all about, who understand that Jesus was born to die, who understand that he went into a grave, he came out of that same grave and he ascended into heaven and he gave his spirit to you so that you could be a different kind of person than you would otherwise be. That is gospel. That is the only gospel. That's the only way. That's the only way out. And Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we think about these things, as we meditate on them, as we ponder them, I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts. Father, some hearts here are icy. I pray that your spirit would thaw them. Some hearts are locked up in a cave. I pray that you'd break the door down. Father, some hearts here have been uh, resistant to your call and your, your goodness. I pray that you would overcome them sweetly. I pray, Father, that you would convert people here this morning. I pray that you'd turn them, and if you turn them, they will be turned. Father, as we pray this to you, we would repeat back to you the words that Jesus taught us to pray. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's sermon, A Theology of Christmas Presents, Part 4. If you enjoyed this, don't miss Christ Church's sermons that are posted to the Canon YouTube weekly.